Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where, quote, I don't think it's that big of a deal to be in a militia, unquote. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids, and W237CZ, Hudsonville. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio, as always, my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Yellow. And Luke Galen. I think we should have our own skeptical militia. Instead of using weapons, we could just throw quotes at each other from philosophy type. <laughs> <laughs> I'll match your Heidegger with a Wittgenstein. I question your premises. Coming up in today's show, we have Creationists versus Psychology. We've got some follow-up on our last episode – where we talked about the scandal currently facing Joey Ratzinger. And uh, we'll finish up with The Stranger Than Fiction. But first, as already alluded to, uh, there's some news uh, from the home front right here in Michigan. That's right, right in our backyard. We've got our very own, I suppose one of many, uh, militias here in Michigan. This is not the Michigan militia, by the way, that was connected to, loosely connected to the Oklahoma City bombings. Yes, it loosely connected. I have no love for the Michigan militia, no. but it is true that Timothy McVeigh was a renegade in yes. that group. And in fact, the Michigan militia, that Michigan militia has come out about this group as well and said, hey, we are not affiliated with these guys at all. But a militia group in uh, eastern Michigan, the thumb part of the state, far away from us. They call themselves the Hutari. Which, which is a term that means Christian warrior that they made up. Yes, they made up their <laughs> own language to use in the backwoods so that nobody else could understand them. I thought at first it was Hatari. Like, I'm like, are they Jabba the Hatari? Or <laughs> yeah, and, and we joke, but this group was seriously bad news if they had actually done what they were planning on doing. And for but, those people who don't know the, the Michigan geography, it's from the same general location where they were making the Bible scopes for the rifles that we talked about that one. This is true. Is that true? Well, it's, uh, I think that one was a little bit north of there, but it's in the same like maybe 50-mile radius. Yeah. There's all huh. kinds of groups in that whole area actually, even though it's kind of around Ann Arbor, which you right. think of as a mecca of funkiness and hippies. Well, they're, they're more the center of the state. But there's some anyway. counties there that have high clan counts and high militia counts. This is true. Mm -hmm. and, and this group, their plan, if you haven't heard about this already, and luckily we can can say that um, nine of them have been arrested, and they are, as far as I know, the only nine that are being sought for arrest by the FBI. Um, their plan was to kill an unnamed uh, police officer, and then at his funeral, they were going to set off uh, IEDs and kill off dozens or yeah. more uh, police officers. They're an apocalyptic cult. It should be noted that this is a Christian militia, specifically a Christian militia. That started off with Bible-type readings and yeah. benign stuff. They're a Christian cult, but I wouldn't uh, link them to any particular Christian sect. Yeah, these guys aren't mainstream at all. They're not even mainstream amongst the militias, amongst the paramilitary types. Yeah. Uh, in fact, word came out later this week that part of how they were caught in the first place was other – 
Michigan militia types who visited Hutari uh, were like, whoa, this is way too extreme for me. Uh, One gentleman who was turned down from entry into the group because he was Muslim was key to arresting the the ninth member who was arrested a, a couple of days after the rest of them. They viewed police officers as foot soldiers for the federal government. Part of the Brotherhood. Yes, part of the New World Order, Mm -hmm. in fact, that is working on behalf of the Antichrist to snuff out all Christian influence during the end times. And so they view themselves as protecting that heritage. Their website said, Jesus wanted us to be ready to defend ourselves using the sword and staying alive using equipment. I don't Mm -hmm. recall that verse saying the Hutari will one day see its enemy and meet him on the battlefield, if so God wills it. I've been to their website accidentally, actually. I I clicked a link in Wikipedia, not realized that it would actually take me there, and now I'm sure there's a FBI profile set up for me, if there wasn't already. A little red light went off in the control room. Oh, let's saddle up the ponies. We got one in Michigan here. And I have to say, it is one of the slickest-looking websites I have ever seen in 1996. Um... It's a very old school kind of site. Um, They have videos on there, um, and none of the videos where they're stating their beliefs or their mission or anything like that, they're instead music videos set to Christian rock, like Striper. I don't know if Striper is actually used, but um, I didn't recognize it, but it's Christian rock where it's guys in all their military gear running through the woods and popping up out of the ground and shooting and um, most of it's fairly innocuous. Some of it even silly. One one guy is running through the woods with his dog on a leash, but it's not like a German Shepherd. It's like it's not a hound dog. No, it's, it's like Benji. Okay, it's this little <laughs> it's little, little mutt dog. dog and uh, running through the woods. Um, but in one, they blow up an IED hmm. and uh, then burn the flag of the UN and hmm. fly their own flag for. The Colonial Christian Republic. Their motto is preparing for the end times battle to keep the testimony of Jesus Christ alive. Yes, and and it's this weird mix of biblical quotes, you know, taken entirely out of context, mixed with this paramilitary stuff. Um, One feature they have on there is the Beast Watch, where they track signs of the um, coming apocalypse. You got to wonder what exactly they had in mind what good would come out of this even to their own agenda do, do they think that the end times battles have finally started they thought that people would rally around them if they did that yeah. exactly like, you know that, that suddenly there would be like a grassroots uprising you that's know right. and i think that that's generally like when you're in your own little niche you know you go to these militia groups and gun shows and everybody's right. like you right. it gives you this false consensus like well if we rise up you know those other groups are going to rise up too yeah that's exactly what they thought they actually had it planned that they would would be pursued by mm-hmm. the police yes. after this. And they had booby-trapped these the, the woods where they were planning on hiding. They had mm-hmm. bunkers set up with provisions to last them for a while. They had kill zones they had prepared to take out police. Yeah, and that's it. They, they thought that if they could show this small little band of freedom fighters could take mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. federal government. It would inspire it would. everyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we shouldn't make too much of this, but at the same time, all of this apocalyptic end time stuff mm-hmm. is on a continuum. Yeah, and there's components of it that are shared that are mainstream in those communities. Like Absolutely. when you mentioned that whole beast thing, it seems funny, but didn't they just have a discussion in the Virginia Senate about implanting 
you know, the chips under your that contain health information, so you wouldn't have to like if you were unconscious. Right, like you get doc. with pets. And no, they had yeah. it was in the transcript that they were debating like, could this possibly be the mark of the beast used in uh, right. talk about Revelation? In Revelation. Right. Yeah. We've talked about previously on the show that uh, belief in this end times apocalyptic stuff correlates really well with attitudes towards nuclear disarmament. So th- there are bad consequences for society in getting too caught up in this kind of grim view of of the end of the world. Uh, So that being said, while these guys are concerned with the end of the world, how about those folks who uh, have their strong opinions about the beginning of the world? The National Science Foundation released the 2010 edition of its Science and Engineering Indicators, which is a survey that is supposed to measure public literacy of science. And oddly enough, they omitted data on Americans' knowledge concerning evolution and the Big Bang Theory from their report. Not in their initial report, but in the final report, they cut that stuff out. That's right. And And why did they cut it out? Well, many people are wondering that. The speculation is that the numbers are a complete embarrassment, as they have been every other year, because uh, the last year's report had that 45% of Americans – I'm sorry, the 2008 report said that only 45% of Americans Mm -hmm. answered true to the question, human beings as we know them today developed from earlier species of animals. Only 45%. Uh, Only 33% of Americans agreed with the statement that the universe began with the Big Bang. Actually, didn't they phrase it as with a gigantic explosion? Like there was some dispute over the meaning of those stats. That was a great big kaboom. That was kind of a poor way of wording it. And and that is the uh, the National Science Foundation. That's how they're justifying their decision to leave this out, is that the, the questions themselves were poorly worded and that they're conflating two different things. They're conflating literacy of scientific theories with belief in scientific right. theories. And now that was the way I, I read this article, is that they were really taking this information out because they had done a, a poor survey, that the questions were not phrased in a, a useful way. Yeah, and when I looked at those, part of me kind of agreed that that – because I did the study yeah. myself where I had to get – I was trying to slice and dice the creationist views, and it is problematic asking people to separate issues like the the length of time of the universe, like it's millions of years, because then they can do that, well, God, to God, a day is like a million years sort sure. of thing. And then the common descent thing, like we, we descended from a common ancestor. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when you ask a question and lump it all together, you don't know which part of that that they're agreeing or disagreeing with. And, and frankly, you, a lot of those stats pick up things that are just outright contradictions, like, you know, right. they would agree that the dinosaurs lived you know, 65 million years ago were killed by a comet at the same – at a different point in the survey, they'd say, but the Earth is like 10,000 years old. Yes. That cannot both be true. So. Yeah. John Miller from Michigan State University who actually created the survey. It was three decades ago that he created the survey. He defended those questions uh, saying that part of being literate is both to understand and accept scientific constructs. But those who removed that data from the survey responded by saying there are many biologists and philosophers of science who are highly scientifically literate who question certain aspects of the theory of evolution. And I, I kind of agreed with that. I guess we're, we're probably going to be going right. against the grain with our crowd. But it is, it's simply true that understanding what the scientific theory says should not be equated with accepting it. I do question how literate many of the people who are questioning natural selection and that sort of thing, I question how literate they really are. Right. 
But yeah, I, I think it is a, a big leap to equate the two, especially since science is supposed to be a skeptical enterprise. Yeah. Uh, there should be – scientists should have the freedom to doubt their own theories and to try to falsify them. Nevertheless, I, I do think attitudes, acceptance of evolution and acceptance of Big Bang, those attitudes are important and relevant information in and of themselves. True. Maybe they shouldn't be framed as telling you something about scientific literacy, but at the same time, it's it's important data. A lot of those surveys show also that there hasn't really been a much change at all in the stats of creationist beliefs versus evolution beliefs. It's, it's held pretty steady, and actually, it's gone up since the 60s and 70s. Creationist beliefs have? Yeah, and so, you know, that... Really? That, yeah. Uh, but not elsewhere in the world. Well, it depends, like, if you're talking, you know... I'm not sure those stats even have any meaning in some of the like the Muslim countries. Yeah, true, you know, that, true. I mean, we talked on earlier episodes about like creationist Muslim books from Turkey and such. I'm not sure a lot of those people. If your educational system is at a certain level, I'm not sure that's really comparable. Right. But yeah, I mean, and obviously in Europe and those t- types of nations, the, those beliefs never really had that much of a foothold and have mm. gone down, down, down. But what we think of as like you know Christian creationism really doesn't have anything outside the U.S. except small pockets in the U.K. and Australia. Most of the public, I think, doesn't even have a firm enough grasp of the science to formulate an, an opinion of these things, you know, other than like a biology class they had in high school, which really doesn't give them much. But what happens is that this is often exploited by people who should know better, like the intelligent design type people. You have sophisticated scientists and mm-hmm. people with PhDs and such who are who are creationists who know that the public is malleable on these issues and not just in the realm of creationism. As we've pointed out before on the show, if you are to take a biblical literalist's position, if you are going to be more to the fundamentalist spectrum on religion, your views are going to conflict not only with natural selection, not only with the biological sciences, but with most of current scientific knowledge. You have to reject physics. You have to reject cosmology. And as we're going to talk about today, you have to reject modern psychology as well. Often I come into contact when I do psychology of religion material, which as most listeners probably know is my area, that psychologists almost always proceed with like findings published in journals that are predicated on the same scientific methods as any other area. But sometimes you encounter people that that publish that have a spiritual axe to grind. And a lot of the journals are actually based on things like the, you know, psychology and theology or that mm-hmm. they'll talk about spirituality. And so you'll have within the normal mainstream psychology mixed in with these people, they stand out a little bit because they look like, well, we're trying to prove or show the benefits of spirituality. And some of it's like right. in a therapeutic context where it's like, you know, counseling using spiritual teachings can help be helpful. But what struck me was I started to see more and more that there was a subgroup of people that were actually actively promoting something at a deeper level, criticizing the concept of the use of the scientific method within psychology itself. Mm-hmm. Like one day I saw in my box unsolicited, somebody had mailed me a copy of a book called Psychology's War on Religion dun, dun, dun. by uh, Nicholas Cummings et al. And it, uh, you know, as I flipped through it, I'm like, well, what is this? And just like it sounds, it basically goes chapter by chapter and shows how psychology as a social science is biased against religion itself. Not just one specific religion, but just all of them. And at a deep level, the assumptions conflict. What was more shocking to me was recently I'd encountered an author of one of the textbooks that I use in my controversial issues class called Mm -hmm. Taking Sides. The author's name is Brent Slife, and he's at Brigham Young University. 
no surprise. Uh, and, that, um, and I use this book because it's just a, it's a survey of uh, – in my class, we have to teach about controversial issues and it's a survey of issues sure. where they have a pro and a con. So you do teach the controversy. I teach the controversy on things that have controversial data. So like some of them are things like like what's the evidence that uh, that – Giving children reinforcements is good for their learning versus bad for their learning, or like uh, Coke we, versus Pepsi, or or we or like no. reparative therapy for homosexuals. One of the chapters right. is on what's the evidence that we should allow? Is it ethical to allow gay people the possibility of change in therapy? Or not? But Slife actually has a, publishes other work, and one of the things that I noticed that he published recently was an article called "Are Psychology's Main Methods Biased Against the Worldview of Many Religious People." Which caught my eye in one of the journals because I'm like, you know, that's that's the, it's not a topical issue. This is a philosophical issue. Right. And the more I delved into this, and there's other people in this same issue of a journal called Psychology and Theology. One of the other articles is called Secular Psychology. What's the problem? None. Well, <laughs> according to them, there's quite a bit. Yeah, of Yeah, there problems. is. And I was shocked. Shocked at how yeah. off the rails yeah. some of these criticisms were by people that also publish side by side on things that are you know mainstream psychology type issues. Yeah, I, I started reading through this when you sent it to me, Luke, and uh, and immediately I started shaking my head and going, "What is going on here?" But by the time I got to the end, I was almost convinced that this had to be satire. Yeah, there was no a, other way to explain this. What is that, Pope law violation where <laughs> right. it's indistinguishable from the I, real? And the, I guess I misunderstood when you sent the link out. I thought this was this was a good article and I started reading it and I went, I'm clearly not getting this because this doesn't – this doesn't sound right. Yeah, I mean, so let me let me outline it. He he basically uh, says that several points. One is that psychologists as – and he's talking about scientists as well as therapy type psychologists okay. like counselors make different assumptions about the world than their consumers. The, right. Most consumers are religious. Psychology is one of the least religious professions, although in the clinical area – So there's some validity are. to that statement. Yeah. So they, the, the, the worldview of a consumer might be that prayer and you know religious type things have efficacy. Uh, uh, many counselors, even though they might be religious themselves, don't do religious counseling. They do things right. like therapy from be- cognitive behavioral therapy where you – Change somebody's thoughts by you know questioning their assumptions and things like that. But mm-hmm. the uh, and so that is correct. But he goes on to say that in experimental type psychology, so when you do studies where you compare control groups with other groups or right. do an intervention, that there that's viewed as in, by most scientists as being a neutral methodology. But it's not. He says it's not neutral. That any type of any type of method has underlying assumptions that themselves cannot be proven. Mm-hmm. This should strike a chord with many people as, as that's what one of the arguments about other types of questioning of science by religious people. They say, well, it's all predicated on things that themselves can't be proven, almost like you know, like the girdle mathematics things where some proofs are themselves not provable within that. Basically, you can see that he's doing a postmodern argument. He says like theistic assumptions that God is active in the world is just as legitimate then. It's similar to science right. and that's based on its assumptions of – of God's uh, – the free will assumption and right. God's intervention. That was my major issue with mm-hmm. this was that on a certain philosophical level, I can agree, of course. Any theory yep. is going to be laden with assumptions and we need to recognize that. But his hidden premise was that naturalistic assumptions are arbitrary, that these are just as good as any other set of assumptions that yes. you could start a theory with. 
and that is clearly mistaken. There is a reason why we start off with observable data, why we try to falsify our theories if possible. He would argue there that the concept of falsifiability is itself an assumption, which is, right. you know, to me, it's, it's kind of maddening. Um, we can assume nothing. Yeah, it is very postmodern and mm-hmm. things like that. And I was trying to think like of another analogy. Let, let's say that when you do it, let's say you're a physician that does a drug study. Your assumption is is that you have a placebo group because people can sometimes change by the power of their expectation, and that's right. why you have a placebo. What if the consumer shared a different assumption than that? Let's say that their assumption is that only an actual medication makes them better. It's irrelevant. And actually perfect because that's what a placebo yeah, so share, does. Sharing the they, assumption uh, with the consumer is not necessary. That's why right. it's an experiment. Yeah. Uh, and, and that whatever the assumption is of the person coming in there. So saying that most consumers of psychology are Christians, if you need therapy or something, uh, therefore, that's different than the assumption of the experimenter, and that makes it invalid. Right. That's that's not a proper analogy. It doesn't matter what the person's assumption is. That's why we do experiments. You have a one condition that's a control, another condition where you alter one thing that's an experiment. If there's a difference, it doesn't matter what my assumption or your assumption yeah. is. That's the only reason there's a difference. What I found so striking was what principles of scientific inquiry he found objectionable. It was it was really it was staggering. Uh, Here, let me read you a part from the article. He says, for instance, the notions that methods should be observable is never empirically tested. Flag that one too. Well, yeah, he says, because this notion is part of what it means to test. Indeed, the doctrine of observability is itself not empirically testable because this doctrine is is not (laughs) itself observable. Uh, Some might claim that this epistemology has been successful. Some. (laughs) There's a handful of them out there. Observation has tended to be pretty successful in the sciences. I scrolled in the margins too. It can be tested through outside. We've had the same argument in different contexts before where if you can have – uh, uh, even if something the assumption is not provable, if you, it's proven by its by its uh, by the results of it of the experiment. You know, if something is a better prediction than another thing, it's probably was based on accurate assumptions. You're just assuming that results can be believed and observed and that's just a, that's just an assumption that I'm well, not willing to leap to. He also says that that theism his theory that theism by contrast he he writes uh, those those people believe in divine activity yeah. and, and even in psychological events in the world they have a belief in free will holism and altruism. And even that's like okay free will is a belief that that most religious people have. But and, and a lot of non-religious people too. But if God is intervening in your in psychological events how is that free will? That is, if he right. intervenes in your thoughts and alters an actual experiment, isn't that divine determinism, if you want to put it that way? Sure. So let's say God gives you the faith to overcome your depression, and yet that to say that your depression is biochemical is deterministic, but God can transcend that by intervening in your life. That's it's still determinism. God's intervening by poking his godly finger in your head, making you less mm-hmm. depressed. You were just determined. What was free will about that? And plus the whole – if God is intervening in experiments and findings to like push things like your computer would have come up with a statistical test and he alters the little circuits to make it mm-hmm. – nothing would be reliable. Everything would be like I could say, well, you know, the sky is blue except God could have made it green but it's altering my visual perception. Right, right. And you'd have to qualify because how do you know that God isn't altering your perception right now? The entire world could be a matrix-like fantasy and God is just going <laughs> – Back to the idea that observation cannot be confirmed because it would be circular. I I don't know if you noticed, but he was really fond of quoting William James. He was very fond of bringing in uh, phenomenology from 
from philosophy. And so I thought I might quote some James and Immanuel Kant kind of in opposition to him. People, religious people love James because he talks about – he takes people seriously about spiritual experiences. But they often don't delve into what he says about that in regards right. to his neutrality or his agnostic kind of type or, of thing. Or about the naturalistic foundations of psychology. Yeah. James was troubled, as any religious person would be, that you were going to have to treat a psychological inquiry, a scientific inquiry into the human mind. You were going to have to treat that as – deterministic, following natural laws. Right. You were going to have to study that naturalistically using empirical evidence, uh, observable, testable evidence. James, uh, wrestling with this, said, let psychology frankly admit that for her own scientific purposes, determinism may be claimed and no one can find fault. If then it turns out later that the claim has only relative purpose, the readjustment can be made. So James is basically saying, let's let's just start off with these naturalistic assumptions and see if they help us at all. And if they don't, uh, we'll go back and we'll revise our ideas. We'll we'll reject that. Owen Flanagan points this out in his book Problem of the Soul. This is very similar to an idea proposed by Immanuel Kant. He had this idea that there was a difference between regulative and constitutive ideas. A regulative idea was an idea that guides your inquiry. That's one of your starting assumptions that guides the inquiry. A constitutive idea is the result of your inquiry. And so for an example of this, Isaac Newton, he was looking for natural laws that govern the motion of objects in space. Now, he had to assume that motion actually behaves natural laws. There's no, there wasn't any reason at the time to assume that it had to actually be that way. So yes, he was starting off with a naturalistic assumption. But when he used that assumption, it was very profitable to his research. He did end up discovering law-like relationships between the motions of bodies moving through space. Right. So on Kant's reckoning, this, this constitutive idea then that follows from the inquiry in a way justifies the assumptions that the inquiry started with. Some are going to point out that that sounds like it's circular reasoning, but the reason why it's not is that we're not just starting with the assumption and then just repeating that assumption in our conclusion. In, in this case, the regulative idea leads to progressive research. We learn things which then suggest new new possibilities which we had not anticipated before, sometimes very counterintuitive ideas that then lead to further research, lead to further discoveries, to more testable hypotheses, to clear and precise data. And of course, then there's always that phenomena of several different lines of inquiry pointing to one conclusion. It's convergent validity. Yes. So mm-hmm. so this is this is a clear instance where you can end up demonstrating that your starting assumptions have some validity. The idea is if it wasn't valid, if it was wrong, then it should never have worked that way. Right. It's only by it's only by some great feat of improbability, a miracle that this hypothesis turned out to have any promising results. Yeah, I think what's troubling about this is that and it's similar to the intelligent design too is that when you can't compete on a field of, of empirical naturalism, you then question the rules of the game and say, well of course it just that's looks right. as if it's superior, but that's because your underlying assumption they try to take it to like a fundamental a meta level. jump. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so what what was troubling to me most about his about Slife's article though was at the end of it when he gets into Kuhn Thomas Kuhn type paradigm shift stuff. And he uses mm-hmm. this is another example of him using what sounds like a philosophy 
philosophy that most you know people recognize as being influential, Kuhn's idea that fields can progress and progress, but then they shift into paradigm kind of like physics shifted with Einsteinian relativity, right. you know, where the, the everything is upended and then you have a new paradigm. And he uses that to suggest that also in psychology what can happen – let me just uh, quote him here that, that – uh, Kuhn's idea of a paradigm shift occurs, the scientific community begins to sense the violation of their deepest assumptions. Scientists resist the recognition of assumption violations. He lists a bunch of scholars that agree that these assumption violations, which then he starts to call ruptures uh, instead of rapture, that the (laughs) scholars agree that the rupture of our biased world originates from beyond this world. And I'm thinking, what are these ruptures that he's talking about? It sounds like he's saying when something isn't explainable, that could be an indication that there is this otherworldly influence that's rupturing through our little narrow worldview and causing us to sort of widen that maybe God is influencing from wow. yeah let me let me read another quote from him here this this to me was just outrageous how are we as mere mortals able to climb out of the safe secure world of our assumptions and glimpse the otherworldly forces that persuade us to radically alter these secure biases so his his initial idea is that he even brings in ideas of confirmation bias here. We're right. so completely unable to challenge our own assumptions that that we really need to wonder how we ever do. How do we ever provoke that paradigm shift? And he yeah. says, phenomenologists, which this isn't scientific. This is you know a, a branch of philosophy. Phenomenologists are increasingly pointing to various forms of divinity as the source of this otherworldly rupture. And then he quotes certain philosophers saying, the invisibly present third party who stands above all participants in the dialogue creates then miracles of understanding. So when we – so when a paradigm shift happens – which I would just explain through cognitive dissonance, right? There's so much new information that's been coming on challenging the old paradigm that eventually some critical mass is reached where people can't uphold that anymore. Or Kuhn's explanation was sometimes the old guard just dies off and and new people then pick up these new ideas. But in Slife's mind, this is actually a form of revelation. He says that. He also refers to it as a theophany. Which, oh, which yeah. is the term for a visitation <laughs> from God. That's right. Like Moses facing the burning bush, that this is what actually goes on in the brain. He's when not a scientist making any assumptions here, though. This That's is completely good. off the rails. I mean, oh, uh, and yeah. I was like, uh, my jaw was like dropping. You know, think about the implications of that. So if your little study doesn't work out or you're something like that, it's not that your data or your theory was wrong. It's that it's being – that there's, it's a sign of some outwardly influence uh, that's that's revealing something you're just too stupid to see. Yeah. This stubborn. Is, this he is refers a, to this as intuition. When a scientist gets the intuition that maybe the traditional theories are wrong here, this is the beginning of that theophany. This is the beginning of that revelation from God. This is absolutely so he's actually proposing that scientists trust their intuition as over observation, as a divine, as finding its source in the divine. Yeah, and this is what bugs me about wow. this because, in, especially in psychology, it's kind of viewed as being a soft social science in contrast to all those really hard sciences like biology and chemistry. But it's probably because people view themselves as being. Their mental contents makes them all amateur psychologists. Yeah, exactly. Any guy in the street can be, I'm a psychologist because I have feelings. I have biology too. That doesn't make me a biologist. And I think it's – what worries me about this field is that a lot of the stuff that we talk about and a lot of the stuff that's you know when we deal with psychology of religion issues has implications for why people believe in religion, which is what we gather together to talk about. Right. But it's – 
it's particularly susceptible to people saying, well, you're making scientific assumptions because, you know, attitudes are, are pliable and they're malleable. He even has a line in his article that says that um, most of what psychologists study, such as attitudes and memories, cannot be directly observed. Topics such as love cannot be represented in observable ways. Well, I can't directly observe atoms. Uh, can I? But you, right. everything is indirectly observed. If I look at a supernova right. remnant, I didn't see the supernova, but I indirectly observed that one must have existed to explain that. That's right. He's pretending yeah. like like the whole field str- follows a really strict behaviorist empiricist. You can measure attitudes, and you can measure things like memory, you, reaction time. You can have somebody's brain in a scanner. You can compare experimental, experimental with control groups, and then rule out other possibilities. That's all right. indirect ways that you can establish. Yeah, but there's how can you really trust observation? Well, it's interesting. Some of the conclusions he takes to follow from his new theistic paradigm of yeah. psychology, he says, and this is just amazing. Here's one of the first things he proposes. First, conventional naturalistic notion that method is rule-following is problematic from a theistic perspective. So our method, our methodology should not follow rules. He says a fully theistic approach, by contrast, would be more phenomena-driven than method-driven. In other words, whatever served our understanding of the phenomena, including changing the procedure and even the logic of science itself, would have the highest priority. That to me is like something of a, of a confession of yeah. how crazy he is. Here's uh, some other great stuff. He says, we would also have to engage rather than disengage in the phenomena we are studying. And he talks about naturalistic science traditionally encourages scientists to be dispassionate, to not let their own emotions override their understanding of the situation. He says, but it's not a detached incorporation of the facts but a relational intimacy with what we care about that he views as important. Um, so a fourth distinction from naturalistic methods, we must revise our traditional reliance on predictability as well, he says, um, because if God is real and intervening in people's lives, things are going to be changing all the be time. unpredictable. Right. It's wow. not going to follow any sort of law-like process, and he needs to incorporate that. In other words, his objections aren't, that psychology is biased. His objections really are that sci- psychology is scientific. He wants to just right. tear apart any scientific foundation. It's like when Kansas, Kansas tried to revise their definition of science to not limit it just to natural phenomena. And so this is why, like, you know, it's just like intelligent design. It's just like these other things that say, well, uh, if something doesn't work out, and my theory is wrong. It could still be right, but it's explainable through some alternative universe that I haven't pr- proven yet. It's really mm-hmm. troubling. And the reason, again, that I'm troubled by this is because I encounter all the time people, students, when I see that they don't like something or if they don't like your, the theory's implications, they can just say, it's not applicable to me. Exactly. Your, your law does – it's not a psychological law for me. It might work for other people but not for me. Like I had a student one time come up and say, well, I disagree with your results. <laughs> you can't disagree with results. They're results. You can disagree with the implication of the results. You or you can argue even about, you know. disagree with the process and, and say that it was a flawed experiment. But you – yeah. Well, it's wow. disturbing to me too that this Slife guy writes mainstream textbooks that are that used. That I buy. Yeah. That, yeah. You, that have been used in your classroom even. You're going to use it again? 
I don't know. I, I was moving towards like a course pack anyway because I'm, I don't use a lot of the topics. Right, but right. I'm thinking that I don't want to like – yeah, this is troubling. It's like But buying, if it's a good book, it's a good book regardless oh, of what yeah. else he wrote. It, you it know? doesn't affect – none of this affects the, the coverage of other topics. Right, right. But he's definitely going off the rails here. Yes, this is troubling and off the rails. This is, but this, uh, this attack on psychology from certain theists is not limited to just – no. The foundations of science itself. Right. We're seeing this going on elsewhere too, particularly with the Discovery Institute. Oh yeah, the good uh, ID folks, right? In 2008, there was a conference, a symposium called the Beyond the Mind-Body Problem, a new paradigms in science of consciousness. There's a lot of new paradigms out there, which is surprising because yeah. you'd think that wouldn't happen all that often. But Jeffrey Schwartz and Michael Ingor who have both signed the Discovery Institute's Scientific Dissent from Darwinism petition, as well as several other people connected to the Discovery Institute, which if, if you don't know who the Discovery Institute are, they, they are the intelligent design folks. That's, yes. the, that's the think tank that's promoting intelligent design. Prominently featured in Ben Stein's movie Expelled. Yes. Jeffrey Schwartz at this symposium says, you cannot overestimate how threatened the scientific establishment is by the fact that it now looks like the materialist paradigm is genuinely breaking down. You're going to hear a lot in the next calendar year about how Darwin's explanation of how human intelligence arose is the only scientific way of doing it. I'm asking us as a world community to go out there and tell the scientific establishment enough is enough. Materialism needs to start fading away and non-materialist causation needs to be understood as part of natural reality. This is the beginning of what the Discovery Institute is calling non-material neuroscience. Wow. They are trying to actively break away from physicalism, from the idea that the mind is what the brain does and that we could understand the mind by studying the physiology of our brains. They're trying to break away from that and now advance a form of Cartesian dualism. So, so the uh, but advance it as scientific, right? Not just a, philosoph- a philosophical idea or religious. It's in the tent. pineal gland, didn't you remember from Descartes, <laughs> yeah, right. where the non-material influences meet the materials in your pineal right. gland? No well, word out yet on how this non-materialist causation actually works. Right now, un- unfortunately, none of us happens to be a neurologist, right? You don't. That's not one of your credentials, Luke. Neuropsychologist. Um, big. That, see, that's a soft I, science. I study neuropsychology. Um, well, next week we are going to have a real live neurologist on the show. In fact, one that I think many of our listeners will be familiar with, Stephen Novella from The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. He's going to join us on the show to explain why in his mind neuroscience denial is the new creationism. So to hear that interview, make sure you tune in next time for part two of Creationism versus Psychology. All right, on our last episode, now moving away from uh, neuroscience, uh, back to sex scandals, uh, we talked about <laughs> some of the – Doesn't that sound – what kind of world is it where we can say <laughs> back to the sex scandals? Uh, we did our last episode about um, the scandal currently hitting the Vatican and – we need to um, follow up on some of that. We've got a few. There's well, developments weekly now. We can't even keep up with all the developments. In yeah, in, including uh, one 
problem, I think, on some of the some of the reporting we did last time, where it turns out that the New York Times lied and that everything we said was wrong, and the church is not responsible at all for any uh, pedophilia. Is is that right? No, it's not right that, at all. Oh, really? Uh, but that has that's been the way some people claimed. are reacting to it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, after all these articles came out, the Vatican began a counterattack on the New York Times basically trying to discredit all their reporting. Mm -hmm. At first, it appeared that they were actually having some success here. Perhaps the most scandalous charge was that Reverend Thomas T. Brundage, who's a Roman Catholic priest and the ecclesiastical judge that was actually assigned to the Father Murphy case in Wisconsin, he came forward and said, hey, isn't it interesting that I was the judge that was in charge of reviewing this case and investigating this here and the New York Times never actually talked to me? You would think I might be a relevant witness to the case. Mm-hmm. And he issued a very long statement concerning the matter, uh, including this quote here. The fact is that on the day that Father Murphy died, he was still the defendant in a church criminal trial. No one seems to be aware of this. Had I been asked to abate his trial, I most certainly would have insisted that an appeal be made to the Supreme Court of the Church or Pope John Paul II if necessary. So this came out and what it appeared to say – what this appeared to say is that the Catholic Church did not drop its proceedings to defrock Murphy. Quite the contrary, the the trial was still going on uh, at the moment that Murphy died. So Bill Donahue, of course – got on his loudspeaker and started talking about how outrageous it was that the Times didn't you know, consult this guy and it shows that everything they said about the Murphy case was wrong. Well, what I was originally going to point out was that if you actually look at the full context of what Brundage says about the matter, he really does affirm that the, that the Vatican sent down the order to, uh, to abate the uh, defrocking trial. Right. It really does say that. It's just his timeline of the events shows that the trial was still going on. But even that turns out to be a lie. Last week, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel posted a memo on its website written by Father Brundage. He was instructing the Archbishop of Milwaukee on how to word a letter that officially abated the trial, showing that he uh. did before the death of Murphy – he did follow the Vatican orders, he did abate the trial, and that he lied about not doing so. So they really should have interviewed this guy because it would have been uh, interesting reading. He has acknowledged this. He doesn't say he lied. He says he forgot. Uh, he said, in all honesty, I do not remember this memo, but I do admit to being wrong on this issue, and I apologize for my mistake. Whoa, 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 whoa. This guy clearly does not work for the Catholic Church. He admitted to having <laughs> done something wrong. No, 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 no. I don't accept that. Other charges against the New York Times article included that several of the documents that they had used from the Murphy case had been poorly mistranslated from Italian. And I looked into this too. And even that that reporting was a little bit suspicious because it appears it wasn't the New York Times that poorly translated it. It appears that it was um, it was actually the Archdiocese of Milwaukee that oh. poorly translated it. Uh, but still, it would mean that some parts of the report were inaccurate. But if you actually look at the retranslated letter, yeah. uh, there's really nothing of substance that really changes. It's more color the, rather than content. The Italian word for rape is really like talk to. It sounds like it's very, <laughs> very – it's a subtle 
No, know. like some of the things they brought up was there was this word for – that was translated in the New, New York Times as secret. We must proceed secretly. Right. And, uh, and the word actually meant strongly. We must, we must pre- proceed on the basis of strong evidence. Right. Um, but that really doesn't make a difference because we already know that these trials were secret trials. We already have documents that talk about these investigations are supposed to be internal. They right. are subject to pontifical secrets. So that, even if it is a mistranslation, doesn't change anything. That's right. So there wasn't much relevant there. Um, but what Bill Donahue and several others were insisting over and over again is, look, you have not shown that Ratzinger is really connected to any of this. All you have shown is that some of his subordinates were not doing their job. But nothing ties this directly to the Pope. So I guess it is logically possible, right, that even though he's been sent memos, he never checks his memos, I guess it's possible that he never reads his mail. Even though he's been described as a micromanager. Right. I guess it's possible possible that his direct subordinates – he never talks to them even about key important cases mm-hmm. like a priest who molested over 200 children. Yep. I suppose all of that is possible. And it's probably also not a good thing to admit that the sheer volume of sexual abuse allegations was so much that he can't be expected to remember any one case. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's honestly, really I think, go, the best argument. You don't want to go down that route. No. But things have changed in the past couple of days. We now do have – a document that has Ratzinger's own signature on it mm. that directly ties this. No mistaking the matter. No, no, directly no. Directly ties he him. He didn't read it. <laughs> yeah, he Which, just he just signed it. Yeah. Ach, ach, I have so many documents on desk. Get my rubber stamp. <clears throat> the letter in question concerns Reverend Stephen Kiesel. Now, Kiesel had actually been sentenced. He'd been convicted in an American court of law. Right. In 1978. He had been sentenced to three years probation. The AP article says pleading no contest to charges of lewd conduct for tying up and molesting two young boys in a San Francisco Bay Area church rectory. So this is his crime. Mm -hmm. The letter didn't concern defrocking Kiesel. Kiesel actually wanted to quit the priesthood himself. Mm. Please let me go and be a layperson. I can't trust myself in the priesthood. And apparently that requires special permission all the way from the Vatican to do that. Wow. In this letter, Ratzinger says actually that his case needs to be examined before permission like that could be given. Um, And this is after he's been convicted? Yes, this is years after he's been convicted. This is uh, his conviction was in 1978. Um, but we might want to think about this. His, Let's take a little his while. Release, to... His release was in 1981, right? And this letter is in 1985. They were still kicking this. They were still sitting on this as late as 1985. Incidentally, during this time, as Kiesel was waiting for his permission to to leave the ministry, he was volunteering as a youth minister. Yeah. Uh, yes, and did continue his abuses. In the letter that is signed by Ratzinger, quoting from the Associated Press, Ratzinger says the arguments for removing Kiesel are of, quote, grave significance, but he added that such actions require very careful review and more time. I I don't understand why a conviction in an American court of law isn't enough evidence that this guy should be dismissed. 
He alluded to the, right. the damage it would do to the universal church. I yes, that's right. Yep, like, that's right. He said any decision, of- any decision to laicize Kiesel must take into account, quote, the good of the universal church and the detriment that granting the dispensation, so that's a permission for him to leave, right. can provoke within the community of Christ faithful, particularly considering the young age of, of the minister. So Kiesel was only 38 at the time. So yeah, his concern was this is going to look bad if we let a young priest just leave the ministry. It's once again, Benedict's priorities are what looks good for the church versus the health and safety of children. They use the word scandal over and over again. They're actually weighing, because this is part of a whole set of memos. Only one of them has Ratzinger's signature, the one I just read quotes from. Mm -hmm. But this is part of a series of memos, and their conversation over and over again is what's going to cause the greater scandal, keeping a pedophile in our midst and keeping it hush-hush or dismissing yep. him from the ministry and dealing with people's attitudes there. In fact, here's an, an internal memo from Father George Mockel when he's writing the Oakland Bishop about this, uh, interpreting the memo that Ratzinger sent. The memo says, quote, My own reading of this letter is that basically they're going to sit on it until Steve, the, the offending priest, right. gets quite a bit older. Despite his young age, uh, the particular and unique circumstances of this case would seem to make it a greater scandal if he were not laicized. So they're going, why are they telling us to just sit on this? And their thought was that they they just wanted to extend it out until he was older, mm-hmm. not let him leave while he was still young. Let's, let's face it, though, none of this is likely to result in any – Anything not, good, quite like, frankly. Well, no, it's not like Benedict's going to re- – I mean they're just going to claim that you – know, how is he supposed to know in any case what was going on? Well, or? they've already claimed that this is a form letter. This was just a form letter that he signed, which is which is ridiculous because it actually has specific content in the case about it. it no, no, they, about they actually age. have forms set up for, for <laughs> yeah. everything just right. so they can right. – Give me a sexual abuse see, we've got holding a pattern one. For young 28-year-old priest, one who's been convicted. You know what we should do sometime is do a, a skit thing and have like, what if the Clinton uh, deposition on tape was Pope Benedict instead? <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on what the meaning of ist is. <laughs> well, Luke, you said nothing's going to result of this. Uh, Dave, I guess oh, it's time for our Stranger Than Fiction for this week. That's right. Richard Dawkins to arrest the Pope. Richard Dawkins, along with Christopher Hitchens, are planning for Pope Benedict XVI trip to the UK in September of this year. They're going to have him arrested. They're going to try to get him arrested. They're going to try to get him arrested. Uh, Wishful thinking, maybe. The article from Times Online in the UK says that the pair believe they can exploit the same legal principle used to arrest Pinochet, the late Chilean dictator, when he visited Britain in 1998. That's right. Uh, Part of the rationale is that even though the Pope is visiting as a state visit. It's not really a state visit. He's not recognized as, as the head of any state. The yes, Vatican, the Vatican's the Vatican state, is not recognized by the UN. Yes, that's it. The Vatican is not recognized as a sovereign nation what? by the UN. That's yep. what this article claims. Don't they have representatives to the UN? Like, uh, you always yeah, but CFI that. has representatives to the UN. I was going to say, anyone can have a, a We're not a nation? <laughs> So, yeah, the hope is that when he sh- – they've got lawyers writing up briefs and the lawyers are confident that yeah. – um, 
Now, and it all hinges on this document that actually has Ratzinger's signature on it. So now there's no doubt. There's at hard all evidence that he's tied to at least one of these scandals. That he has he had knowledge of it and didn't do anything about it. Christopher so. Hitchens said this man is not above or outside the law. The institutionalized concealment of child rape is a crime under any law and demands not private ceremonies of repentance or church-funded payoffs, but justice and punishment. And Richard Dawkins sums up, I think, everything we've been saying in the last couple of episodes about the Pope. Dawkins said, this is a man whose first instinct when his priests were caught with their pants down is to cover up the scandal and damn the young victims to silence. Now, I do think it's it's not going to happen as far as oh, what, a, if what a fiasco that would be well, I mean, if the Pope did end up getting arrested or detained. I'm sure the politics would kick in and there's absolutely. no way it there's, would happen. There's no way. But at least what is conceivable is that you could get a situation where the Pope would have to cancel his visit because there's a warrant out for his arrest. And that is a huge embarrassment. Would be a very him. big yeah. embarrassment, yeah. And, for the church. And I have to say, I, I think comments on the blog and people I've spoken to personally about our last episode have have commented on the level of Schadenfreude, a German phrase, it should be noted, which is for those of you who haven't seen um, Avenue Q, the musical. They have a whole song about it. Um, it's taking pleasure in other people's pain. My feeling is I don't like Ratzinger. I do not like this man. I don't trust this man. Um, I think he was a poor choice as Pope. Am I thrilled that bad things are happening to him? No, I'm thrilled that maybe finally something is going to be done about this abuse that's been going on in the Catholic Church for years and years. I'm thrilled that bad things are happening to him. Oh, well. Here's my thing. I don't like – sometimes I get the feeling too that that's just too perfect for us and we are kind of like schadenfreude. But here's the right. thing that, I, that keeps going back in my mind. What if it wasn't the church and it was the same allegations but it was like a secular institution? Sure. Or even an outright – let's say that Camp Quest – had a, a counselor who was, you know, mm-hmm. had been taking liber- – that's for like the secular summer camp. Do you think that the same level of, of, of benefit of the doubt or cordiality yeah. would be afforded a secular institution? To, I would be ashamed if Absolutely. Camp Quest was harboring a pedophile or something and making political excuses for it. I, it would, We'd be it calling would really for that person me. to go to jail and anyone who helped cover it up. Could, to, could anyone imagine though everyone like, well, they do a lot of good so – or that, uh, well, the double standard is what gets me. Yeah, so, absolutely. So, so it's not like I'm – you know, that I take pleasure in, in, in the, the Catholic Church suffering or whatever just because they're religious. But I think it's that right. what, what irritates me is the reaction to it is is obviously people – you know what do you need to see other you know smoking guns if it was any other group i think anyone who's involved with this scandal from the priests who actually committed it to the people who helped cover it up should go to jail and that includes I mean, Ratzinger. I, I think I mentioned this before in the show like we had a similar thing in the Lutheran school while I was growing up we had two separate instances where the former principal and one of the teachers had has molested kids mm. during the time that I was there my brother and I were in school and this was happening we didn't know it until at the time right. but there were even after it came out and there was overwhelming evidence and, and there's all, people there that were like they were upset at the accusers saying they're, they're wrecking our church or they're, they're you know it's causing people to if we say this then people the will, will withdraw their kids from schools and blah Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing that upsets me. Is, no, if you is, don't do anything about it, they're going to withdraw their kids from the schools, as Catholics should be doing. Catholics who are sick of this should be leaving the Catholic Church to make a statement. It's always the, the first reaction is always to circle the wagons mm-hmm. yep. and to defend your own. I don't really see what's wrong with taking pleasure when somebody is suffering for reasons that they themselves deserve. 
That's you know? a good point. This isn't like somebody crashed their car and I'm getting you – know, oh, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, Boy, that right. sucks. That sucks. They lost their job. They got laid off or anything else and taking joy at that. These are people who have been evading public scrutiny and been making excuses for crimes and now their hypocrisy is being revealed in the bright light of day. Uh, so that people see who they, they really are. I do take joy from that. That that to me yeah. is – that's about the only type of justice we're really going to get from what happens. The hypocrisy is a separate – yeah, that's also a separate issue because we've had to deal with them before. This is the same institution that lobbies against adult same-sex couples like adopting kids. Put in yourself – when you set yourself up as some sort of moral paragon and appeal to these principles and then you have a feeling within your own group of moral And you refuse to be accountable spine, for it. Jesus said, don't try to remove the speck of sawdust from your neighbor's eye until you've removed the, the beam of wood from your own. That's right. I mean, if they did examine the beam in their own eye, if they did decide to learn from this and open up the files and get this all over with, make amends, then I would have a very different attitude towards them. Yep. So not going to happen, though. Probably not. <laughs> I think yeah. that each of our episodes should have a German word as a theme. From Zeitgeist <laughs> to Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. <laughs> and, you know. Yeah, we should have just renamed 65 Schadenfreude. There we go. And that's all for this week. Until next week, check out our website at www.doubtcast.org. Email us at doubtcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Zazzle at slash doubtcast. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, please write us a review on iTunes. We got a ton of them uh, after our last episode. Thank you so much, by Thank the way. You. That's wonderful, especially the one that highlighted me as being awesomer than Luke. Uh, we need more of those. Uh, so thanks. Isn't anybody going to stand up for Jeremy and how great he is? Come well, on. That's just taken Vote as Vote for a... Luke, listeners. <laughs> Vote for Luke. <laughs> oh, gosh. What, what have we unleashed? So uh, thanks again for listening. We'll be back next time right here on Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. The letter didn't concern defrocking Kiesel. Which had already occurred, obviously. No, it hadn't occurred. No, I was making a joke. Oh, right. I get it. Tasteless. Yes. <laughs> By the way, every time you said phenomenon in that last part, uh-huh. in my head I went, do, 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 do. Phenomenon. Do, 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 do. Phenomenon. Do, 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 do,